I'm going to take up the fourth and final message in this series on discipleship that we have been learning from, uh, from Bronwyn and from Darren. And right at the start, I really want to um, pick up on something that Darren said last week about discipleship itself and about this idea of people in Jesus' time choosing a rabbi, somebody that they would follow, that in whose footsteps they would follow, from whom they could learn, from whom they could, they could a person they could watch and learn from and follow in their footsteps. And rabbis would walk just as Jesus walked across the countryside. They would be widely respected. It was a great honor to become a disciple of a notable rabbi and to walk behind them, to hear them teach, to speak with them and learn from their ways. Now, I want to pick up on that because we've been talking about discipleship for four weeks, but it's a slightly abstract concept. But I want to make it a bit more solid for us. And this is about more than discipleship. It's about being a disciple. And a disciple is a person who follows in the footsteps of their rabbi, their teacher, their master. And as Christians, we are people who say, I follow Christ. Okay, so I, it's something that I sometimes think of when I think, am I a Christian? Or is it more significant for me to say to someone, I follow Christ. I look to Him. I seek to walk in His footsteps to become more like Him, to do the things that He did and go to the places that He went. And that's what I want. And it's not easy. But I say, I want to be one of those people who says, I follow, our, and, uh, I, I follow Christ. And this is one of the things that Bronwyn said in, in week one. She said, discipleship is that every day walking out. We walk out in that journey following our Lord and Master. So this is more than being a believer or calling myself a Christian. This is being a disciple. It's choosing to follow It's choosing to become more like Christ, to know Him and grow in Christ-likeness. And so I want to preface this by saying that discipleship is more than just salvation. It's more than just saying, I believe, I'm a Christian, I believe what Jesus did for me. He took my sins on the cross, I'm thankful for that. I'm just so glad I've got the hope of eternal life. It's more than that. It's even more than... Healing. We're disciples not just to be saved. We're disciples not just to be healed, but we're disciples to grow in Christ likeness, to become more like Christ. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, put it like this I love this. He said, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. And so we hear a word, an inspiring word from a man like Phil Campbell, and he is holding that hope. He is sought to know Christ. He is sought to know the power of his resurrection and somehow to attain to that. So, Let's get back to the word. When I was invited 
to take this fourth and final uh, message on discipleship, Bronwyn said to me, you know, I'm going to do these first two sections on 2 Timothy 1. Uh, I'm going to work through it verse by verse. Uh, Darren's going to take a completely different approach. It's not his style. And I said, you can do whatever you like. Go for it. I said, great. Uh, and you know what? I love 2 Timothy. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. And uh, on reflection, I decided, you know, I'm going to pick up where Bronwyn left off. She did the first two-thirds of chapter one. I'm going to do the last six verses, the last third of chapter one. Uh, all of those styles of preaching, the style of testimony, what a powerful form of preaching and teaching. I love it. I love all of them. But today I've chosen to take on that verse-by-verse approach. So we're going to go into 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to pick it up from verse 13. We're going to read six verses together. And I'm just going to, I'm going to teach from those six verses. So it's 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. Paul writes to Timothy, What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it, with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. So just before we jump into that very first verse 13, let's just revise our context. The context that we have is Paul in prison. He's in prison for the second time under the cruel and merciless emperor Nero. He's left Timothy behind in Ephesus to look after the church there. And uh, Timothy has become his apostle delegate in Ephesus. Paul has moved on in his missionary journey and then eventually been arrested and finds himself in a dungeon, a dark dungeon. And he manages to get this letter off to Timothy. And in a sense, people have often said this This letter is like Paul's last will and testimony. They're the last things that he wants to get written down and sent off to Timothy because he knows that his time is coming. It's been revealed to him. He says, in fact, he says, the time has come and I am going to be poured out like a drink offering. He knows, this is in chapter 4. He knows that his time has come. He has fought the good fight. He has finished the race. He has kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. These are the last words that he thinks he's going to be able to get off to Timothy. So they're powerful words, and he commissions Timothy with some really important work. But let's let's look at these six verses together. Let's see what it has to say to us about discipleship. Verse 13, what you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. This word pattern 
in the Greek has connotations of a plan or a blueprint. Uh, Timothy had the privilege of traveling with Paul all over the countryside, across nations. For years they traveled together. He saw Paul preach and teach time and time again. He spent countless hours talking with Paul and learning from him. What a privilege. And Paul says to Timothy, What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching. Because he knew that we as disciples need a blueprint. We need something certain and secure that we can use as our reference point. A blueprint is something that a designer or a plan is something that a builder might refer to as they set out on any construction project. They don't just look at it the once, you know, on day one of the project and then go, I get it. And then in the months that follow, just build it from memory. They bring it out day after day. They look at it again and again. They measure up. They look at the work before them and they go, is that in the right place? They talk to their fellow builders and they say, dude, that window is in the wrong place. I've seen that. (laughs) One of the houses that my dad actually had built, the one, the last house he built and he lives in now, he used to go over there every now and then and check on the work and he'd, he'd say, guys, I think this window's in the wrong spot. And it happened. It happens. Okay, you need a blueprint and you don't just have it the once, you keep going back to it. And it needs to be that really core stuff. You know, a blueprint, it's only in one colour. It hasn't got all the furnishings, it doesn't say what wallpaper you're going to have in the living room. It's the essentials. And we need to get the essentials right. They need to be really clear. And you know, the early church, in the first centuries of of Christianity, uh, the church developed creeds, you know. They talked about the Apostles' Creed, for example, the Nicene Creed. And they said, what are the things, what are the essential things that define us as believers? And churches today all over the world, centuries later, some of those churches, they recite those creeds week after week after week that they might never forget what the essentials are. And we sang a song already this morning, I believe. We made statements of belief. I believe in the resurrection. We all sang that together. It's so important that we have a blueprint Do you have a blueprint? Do you know the essentials of the faith? Have you spent the time in the Word? Have you been going, not just to church, but have you been, are you in a connect group? Have you been going to Super Connect? Do you meet with other believers? Are you getting to know the Word of God? Do you know the essentials? We may not read the Creed every week here, okay? We may not have had Timothy's privilege of traveling with Paul for years to learn a pattern of sound teaching, but we've got the Bible. We've got Paul's writings. We've got Romans. Who's read Romans? Romans is full on, you know, but it's got a, it's got a pattern of sound teaching in it. It was Paul who said all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It was Paul that said, you know what? There's a penalty for our sins. It was Paul that said, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It was Paul in chapter 5 of Romans who said, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us to save us from our sins. It was Paul who wrote to Titus, and we've got these words, Titus chapter 3, for Christ died for sins once for all to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. We have the pattern of Paul's sound teaching 
in the scriptures for us. We need to know those words. We need to bring them out regularly. We need to measure up. We need to encourage one another. We need to exhort one another and and teach one another. So let's do it. Now, two things. Right at the end, Paul adds, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. You know what? There's always a risk when we know things really well. We just get a little bit doctrinaire. Do we, is there a risk that we get just a little bit prideful, a little bit clever? It's like, you know, at our church, we preach the full gospel. You know. Is that a risk? It's a risk for me. I tell you, when we've got a pattern of sound teaching, we have to keep it close with faith and love in Christ Jesus. It's the faith that says grace is the basis on my, of my salvation. But for Jesus and my faith in him, I'm nothing. My blueprint's nothing. And love, because love's the, de- the, the defining characteristic, Jesus said, of the disciple of Christ. Because, you know, a creed can bring great unity because we all believe the same thing. But we need to temper it with faith and love. And we can overcome a lot of minor disagreements by holding on to those core things. So we need a pattern of sound teaching. But we also need to guard that good deposit. Okay? We need to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to us with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Because that good deposit, that is the gospel. And there are plenty, there are plenty of imposters out there who will challenge, who will distort, who will dilute or mess up the blueprint. Okay? We need to be on guard. The gospel has been entrusted to us just as it was entrusted to Timothy. And we need to guard that deposit in our hearts. The deposit that we have been forgiven, healed and welcomed into God's family. So he says it twice, guard it and guard it. It's really important. We need to keep it safe from those who would steal it away. And we can just flip to chapter 2, verse 16, and read about these two guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus. They wandered away from the truth. And they said, the resurrection has already taken place. And all these people started to lose their faith because they thought, well, I, don't, I didn't see it. Maybe I'm not a believer. And Paul exhorted Timothy, man, you've got you to guard against those people. Chapter 3, verse 13, Paul said, evil men and imposters... Imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But we have to hold on to the core truth, that fundamental blueprint, so that we can guard against that. In chapter 4, he taught, Paul, Paul says to Timothy, watch out for Alexander the metal worker. Seriously. Alexander the metal worker strongly opposed our message and he did a great deal of harm. You too should be on your guard against him. So we need to be on guard. Keep on watch, okay? And do it with the help of the Holy Spirit, okay? So don't just be on guard, but be filled with the Spirit. Rely on the Spirit to teach you and to help you discern when deception comes. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, in the message, get this. Carefully weigh and examine what people tell you. Not everyone who talks about God comes from God. There are lots of lying preachers loose in the world. What a sage warning. It's like, we need that blueprint 
And we need to guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. And these become foundational for the disciple of Christ. Let's keep going. Verse 15. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. Asia? Paul went to Japan? China? No, he wasn't talking about that Asia. He was talking about the Roman province of Asia. So it's what? It's Western Turkey, what we call Western Turkey today. And um, Paul spent years of his life establishing and building churches in this region. It was a really important place for him. It was a place where he had put his heart and soul and years of his life into building churches here. And you know what? There are seven churches listed there, and some of you will recognize the names of those churches from Revelation. So Paul, in his desperation and disappointment, said, everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. I'm in prison here in Rome. Everyone's deserted me. And then we think, well, actually, 30 years later, this revelation came and there were still churches there. So it wasn't over. But for Paul, it was a desperate time because he was in prison. And it turns out that these two guys, Phygelus and Hermogenes had completely deserted Paul. We don't know who Phygelus and Hermogenes were. Lots of people have speculated. But Paul knew them, and Paul knew that Timothy knew them. And he said, everyone's deserted me. Even these two guys, Phygelus and Hermogenes. And Paul was, there was a grief in his heart. He knew the experience of being deserted. He was in a dungeon in the darkest place. And all he knew was that they had all abandoned him. Now, we don't know, was it uh, as soon as he was out of the province of Asia that they all drifted away? Was it because they were, in fact, ashamed of his chains? It was a dangerous time in the Roman Empire to be a Christian. Was it because uh, false teachers had come in once Paul was off the scene and had messed things up? It could have been any or all of those things. But Paul felt deserted and he talks about this in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy Demas because he loved this world has deserted me Uh, and verse 16 at my first defense no one came to support to my support but everyone deserted me he knew the experience of being deserted we are in an era of desertion and sifting I believe there are people who we would never have thought who are leaving the church. I'm hearing it. Okay, Maybe you're hearing it. There are people who have led churches, big churches, published books, written songs that we have known and loved for years and they're publicly announcing, I'm not a believer. I'm not sure I believe that stuff anymore. Maybe you know people too. Maybe you know people that you once worshipped with, who you've seen on Facebook. They've said... I'm not a Christian anymore. They're publicly declaring it. And people are being tested because there are big questions arising, aren't there? There's questions that at the very core of who we are, questions to do with identity and gender and the great uh, differences in wealth and prosperity across the world, human trafficking, slavery, environmental degradation, and people are having to choose and make decisions. And there's a sifting going on. You know, and people are falling away. Not just falling away, some people are deserting. Okay. 
So Phygelus and Hermogenes are two people that are examples for us of deserters of Christ, deserters of the faith. Now, we shouldn't be surprised. This is not a new revelation. Jesus talked about this in in, uh, Matthew 24. Jesus said, talking about the last times, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. The disciple of Christ is faithful to the end. When the going gets tough, when the questions are hard, when others are falling away and deserting, the disciple of Christ is faithful to the end. No matter what the storm, no matter what the challenge, they hold firm to their blueprint, they guard the good deposit, and they stay faithful to the end. Now, we're on to Paul and Onesiphorus. We've had the example, the negative example of Phygelus and Homogenes. And now we've got this other extraordinary name, Onesiphorus. I don't know about you, I have never met anyone that called their children Onesiphorus. <laughs> Maybe in other cultures it does. You know, in South America, Jesus is not an unusual first name. Okay. Maybe there are cultures where Onesiphorus is a name. Now, Onesiphorus is the exact opposite of Phygelus and Homogenes. Now, it's all right if you don't call your kids Phygelus and Homogenes. But an Onesiphorus, I'd say to you, this is a great name. It's a great person to be named after. So next baby comes, have a think about it. Onesiphorus. I don't know, I don't know how you would abbreviate that. Onesiphorus. Oni. Yeah, yeah, it could be, couldn't it? But Onesiphorus is the example of Christian kindness. He is the example of faithfulness over time in absolute contrast to Phygelus and Homogenes. Okay, so I've just done a little timeline. This is not to scale, okay? Uh, so don't count the dots. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's also, um, you know, these dates, we're, we're, uh, we're reasonably uh, sure about these. Not absolutely, okay? So I've just put right at the start the death of Jesus, AD 30, roughly, okay? Uh, and then we've got around 53 um, down here. Look, I've got a pointer. It's fantastic. Uh, Paul spends about three years in Ephesus, and we reckon that's when he would have met Onesiphorus for the first time. And Onesiphorus was a man who just stood out as a helpful guy. He helped Paul in so many ways. We don't know exactly. It's probably hospitality, opened his home to him, gave him food, money, uh, all kinds of provision. Uh, and then that was in, in Paul's third missionary journey he was like there for three years then he moved on and later he i mentioned this imprisonment in rome which is talked about in acts 28 because at that time he was actually under house arrest and it was really nice he rented his home he was a prisoner but he rented his own home and people could come visit him and he did like years of preaching while in prison okay so i want to distinguish this time in prison from this one because when he wrote to timothy was this second one okay and, and here, he was in a dungeon. We know it to be a, a place called the Mamertine Dungeon in Rome. It was deep underground. It was awful. Okay. He had no privileges at all. Second time he visits Ephesus, on his fourth missionary journey, Onesiphorus was there. He was being that helpful man. 
And then he finds himself in prison. This imprisonment leads to his execution. We believe that he was put to death under Nero and he was never released. But even so, these, these three that I've put boxes around, these are the times when Onesiphorus and Paul's lives intersected. And Onesiphorus, we believe, was a merchant, a wealthy merchant probably, and he had cause to travel to Rome at times. And when he was in Rome this time, he knew Paul was in prison. And he went out to him. He looked for Paul. Can you imagine how hard it would have been to find somebody in that era in prison? Not only that, but to be a Christian in this time was deeply risky. Okay? Nero was known for starting a great persecution of Christians. They were executed en masse, fed to the lions, torn apart by dogs, used as human torches. Okay? horrendous time to be a Christian in Rome and Onesiphorus knew that Paul was in prison alone everyone had deserted him and he said I'm going to find that man and I'm going to support him in any way I can so that's the background to Onesiphorus now Onesiphorus is this example of refreshing okay Paul writes to Timothy he goes you know Onesiphorus he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains Okay, so the disciple of Christ refreshes other believers. Onesiphorus was a model of this. Uh, he visited Paul in prison, but even in Ephesus, he brought, he, he, he brought um, hospitality and fellowship. But imagine Paul all alone, all deserted, and then this man comes, brings him clean clothes maybe, maybe fresh food and water. Maybe they sat and prayed together. Paul was refreshed at his lowest point. And the disciple of Christ is one who has this as a priority, to refresh other believers. Imagine how all of that would have lifted Paul's spirits in that dungeon, on death row, abandoned by everyone. And Onesiphorus, he'd he'd been consistent over time, look, 53 AD to 68, this is up to 15 years. Paul had seen Onesiphorus come back time and time again and he was the same man. He was consistent and he was a man who refreshed other believers. Can I challenge you to think back? Think of people that have led led you to Christ. Think of people who have been an example to you and have modeled good Christian principles to you who've encouraged you in the past can i lay you a challenge can i say look that person up maybe they live in armadale maybe they live somewhere else look that person up and let them know let them know that they made a difference to you and you remember and the seeds they sowed in you have borne fruit and you remember them i um when i was an undergraduate in canberra many years ago the pastor of my church there was a first year out curate and um, he inspired me as a teacher and a preacher of the word. I would not miss his sermons for anything. And you know what? Today, he's a bishop. He's a really senior person in the established church. And earlier this year, I just had it on my heart to contact him. I didn't have a phone number for him or anything. I had to write to his bishop's office, fill in an online form, and like put my mobile number on there and say, uh, he'll know who I am. Can you pass this on and tell him that I'd love to catch up with him? And a few days later, I get this phone call from this bishop. He goes, well, fancy hearing from you. I said, I'd like to buy you coffee. And I sat there and I told him how it inspired me. 
And you know, it turned out that he'd been having a hard time that week. In fact, that month. And he, I said, 30 years ago, not 30, 25 years ago, not that old. Uh, 25 years ago, you inspired me with this example. And I want to thank you because that's had an effect on me year after year. And I, ha- I hadn't spoken to him for 25 years. Let me encourage you just to think of little ways that you can refresh people that have been like that for you. Okay? So think about how you can refresh others who have blessed you because who knows what they're going through right now. And publicly, outwardly, they might look like they've got it all together. But a good word in season is a powerful thing. Verse 17. Okay, Onesiphorus, when he was in Rome, he wasn't ashamed of Paul's chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me. Until he found me. He spent money, he expended time, and he found Paul in this dungeon. This little snippet of a photo is actually from the Mamertine dungeon today in Rome, which still exists. And it looks quite bright and cheery there, in a sense. But it was a dark and filthy place. And, uh, and Onesiphorus went there. And as I said, it was a dangerous time to be a Christian in Rome. Uh, he went to the place where no one else would go. And the disciple of Christ will go to those places and find those people in response to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus, in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, he, he, he named some people for us. He said, go to the hungry and the thirsty. Find those people. You know, the hungry people in the world, the thirsty, they're not the sweetest looking, smelling people in the world, generally. But Jesus said, go to those people. You know, he said, go welcome the stranger. Strangers are scary. We don't know who they are. But Jesus said to welcome in the stranger. Jesus said, visit the sick. How much time do you spend in hospitals? Who do you know who's really struggling with illness? Who needs a kind word? Who needs to be encouraged? Jesus said, visit those in prison. Do you know prisons are an extraordinary harvest field for the gospel? Who's been in a prison? Who's been in a prison? I'm not asking you who's been a prisoner. (laughs) If you've been a prisoner, that's right. You don't have to tell me. You can talk about that later. But I've I've done a little bit of prison ministry, okay? I used to go and play uh, the piano in chapel in Parramatta when it was a maximum security prison. And I saw frightening men with tears in their eyes a harvest field for the gospel, come to chapel and say, I have ruined my life. I'm ready. I'm ready to hear about the cross of Christ. I'm ready to hear about the gospel. I'm ready to turn my life around, turn my life over. Go to those places. You know they're scary places? The chaplain would say to me, just walk close to me. (laughs) You'll be all right. The prisoners respect me. There's some scary men in there, but they're men and women that are ready, go to those places. The disciple of Christ goes to the places where others will not. And finally, verse 18, you know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. The disciple of Christ is a helper. The disciple of Christ serve others. We know from Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Onesiphorus was a great helper to Paul each time Paul was in Ephesus. Think about practical ways that you can serve. There's so many ways. They're so diverse. There are opportunities in this church. They're various. Ask how you might serve. Search your heart. Ask the leadership. See if the Holy Spirit prompts you. Can I encourage you to serve? Because we're called to serve one another. We're called to, in fact, go beyond just simple acts of service, but commit costly acts of service. Washing each other's feet was the example that Jesus set for us. After he'd done that, he washed his disciples' feet. He said, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So the disciple of Christ serves others. The disciple of Christ actually remembers that Jesus gave us one identifying factor by which the world would know that we were disciples of Christ. It's, it's in the same chapter as he talked about, he, he washed his disciples' feet. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The disciple of Christ serves serve the church, we serve our Lord and Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we serve and love one another. These are the distinguishing factors for the disciple of Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we long to be your true disciples. Going beyond the salvation you so graciously won us, We want to walk in your footsteps. We want to grow and become more like you. We want to know you and your power and somehow to come to know your resurrection. We choose to keep a pattern of sound teaching in our lives and we commit ourselves to guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. We commit ourselves to be faithful to the end. Not deserters, Lord Christ, but to be faithful so that when the going gets tough, we're faithful to the end. May our hearts for you not grow cold. May we never desert. May we remain faithful to the end. And Lord Jesus, how we long to be like Onesiphorus. We long to be that model of Christian kindness. Help us to be a source of refreshing to those who need it. Help us to go where others will not go. Help us to be faithful to the end. In all these things, we long to become more like you, Lord Jesus, following your example of humble service. We ask that the love amongst us is so clear and so strong that the world will say, those people must be disciples of Christ. Look at the love amongst them. 
help us in this. We pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.